and welcome to this episode of Keeping Track. My guest today is a composer working with acoustic, electronic and improvised music. She has written for chamber and vocal ensembles, film, theatre, installation and multimedia. She was the Mark Nelson Fellow in Music at Princeton University, completing her PhD in music composition in 2019. She has formed multiple collaborative relationships with many ensembles and musicians including Alarmal Sound, Third Coast Percussion, Ensemble Maison, Beethoven, Quince Contemporary Vocal Ensemble, Crash Ensemble, Contempo Quartet, the National Symphony Orchestra, This Is How We Fly, Chamber Choir Ireland, Dublin Guitar Quartet, Paul Rowe, Michelle O'Rourke, Anne Lena, Andonovska, plus many, many more. Her work has been featured at New Music Dublin, First Fortnight Festival and Dublin Fringe Festival, among others, and she's been composer in residence at Bang on a Can Summer Festival, Soundscape and Greywood Arts. Her 2019 residency at Centre Cultural Arlandais focused on recording piano improvisations and public pianos in Paris. Her recent projects include A Thing I Cannot Name, a 20-minute opera film commissioned by the Irish National Opera, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, commissioned by the National Symphony Orchestra, and We Could Be Diving for Pearls, commissioned by Glio Festival. She was a 2023 recipient of the Markovich Award, which is funding the composition of an hour-long radio work in response to Eamon de Valera's 1943 radio address on language and the Irish nation, and she is currently a lecturer in composition at the University of Galway. It is fair to say we are in the presence of a prolific talent, folks. I'd like to welcome the inimitable, the unstoppable, the invincible, Amanda Ferry. Hello. Thanks, thanks for coming on the show, Amanda. Thank you. Do you want to orientate our listeners with one of your own tunes to start off with? Yeah, um, I might start with um, a choral piece. It's a, a vocal quintet called The Very Air Tastes Different. And I wrote that for an ensemble called Gallicantus. And the text around that is a collection of tweets that I collected the day after we voted yes in the marriage equality referendum. I was living in the US at the time and I, I couldn't get home to vote and I was pretty miserable about that actually. So the next day when it became clear that it was going to be a positive result. I collected a bunch of tweets that, um, I don't know, I thought they were quite poetic and, and, and beautiful on that day. And I later used them in this piece then. So all the, all the text in this piece is from Twitter.
that was the very air taste different by Amanda Fury. Could you tell us a little bit about how the tweets informed that piece? Yeah, so they make up the text entirely. I guess I'd collected a few and then decided on an order that worked well with the structure of the piece. I don't know, sometimes ideas just come to you and I decided as I was scrolling. Also, Twitter is such a transient, you know, it's just a scrolling news feed. And I thought if I collected these tweets, it just gives a bit of permanence to them, but also the day because news just, you know, flies by now and you forget about these little, little moments, I think. Let's go back to the start. Um, your legacy as a composer is already abundant. Your output surpasses any musician I've ever met. Would it be right to presume you took up music at an early age and that you come from a musical family? I don't actually come from a usually musical family in the sense that my parents... You know, they didn't go to music lessons or anything. My mom sings a lot and she was always singing, always, always, um, still does. But I think I started piano lessons when I was around eight. Initially, wasn't interested at all. And I'd say about a year later, I was back and obsessed. I think in the interim, I had got really into listening to music and been frustrated that I couldn't play certain songs and something even at that age I realized oh I, there's something maybe I need to go back to the lessons to figure this out and help me even if it's just playing by ear or writing the notes down and then I, I there was some kind of realization where I said I probably need to go back to these lessons because my teacher would be able to help me do that. And are you a piano player first and foremost? No I mean I once I started back on those lessons, um, I was pretty obsessed and I kind of tore through all the grades and exams. And then as a teenager, it was all about performing, you know, any chance I could get in secondary school. And then when I started college, there was this realisation that, um, I don't know, my, you know, the standard required to go that route of like, you know, performing and concert pianist or whatever I was not at that level which was fine I wasn't upset about that at all it was just when you start university there's a lot of realizations about your ability certain things especially in, mu in third level music courses um but it was it was fine that's when kind of composition took over then in university so what we listened to when you were growing up I remember being really drawn to any song that did have sort of piano solos in it and I was also really interested in songs that had I suppose essentially kind of classical influences. I really liked songs with orchestral accompaniment or you know like even if it was a pop song with orchestral arrangements I was really drawn to that and I really liked Enya. I was a big fan of Enya. That sound world I suppose a lot of reverb <laughs> a lot of like choral kind of textures I was really into that as well. And Kate Bush, probably not at that age, but definitely as a teenager then, I got really into her stuff. band I was in called Stanley Super 100, they're all traddies, except yeah. for me. Yeah. And um, I never understood Enya. I yeah. never got it. I thought it was just for Americans. I thought it was like, you know, the yeah, musical equivalent the of a postcard. Age. Yeah, 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 whatever, yeah. <laughs> One day the singer of the band played Orinoco Flow on an acoustic, you know? Mm. And I was like, this is rock and roll. Yeah, that riff. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so we ended up covering it. You could really, like, make it sound huge, you know? But the chorus is, like, like, sail away. Yeah. It's really, like, anthemic or something. Yeah. Let me know? reach, let me reach. <laughs> it's <laughs> total glam rock, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, there's not a lot of, you know, research scholarship on Enya, but I wish there was. You know, when you take the, the really obvious signifiers away, like all her vocal layering and the amount of reverb she uses and you kind of strip back the songs, there's a lot going on there. Totally, yeah. Output, yeah. I would always say that I come from like a punk or DIY world, you know. Um, would you say you come from the classical world or do you see music like that at all? I mean, it was only when I suppose I got older, definitely in university, you realise there's different scenes. There was never, you know, I'm from Offaly originally, from Tullamore, small town. I was never really aware of like different music clicks or anything I was very involved in anything musical in school but that was that could have been a musical or a choral thing or an orchestral thing or whatever I am aware of composers who would associate themselves with classical training in the classical world I never ever did even though you know I I suppose I'm technically classically trained you know that I went to music lessons and everything I always felt a bit outside when I started off as a composer in university well it was a lot harder that we're talking what 2003 2004 it's a lot better now but there was there was very little contemporary music being performed that was was composed by women I wasn't really aware of a lot of women composers I'm I'm not a fan of that term at all but just to differentiate there wasn't really any you know at contemporary music concerts that much it has improved a lot but I didn't really see myself anywhere. You know, it's one of those simple things where I didn't see any other, anyone else like me writing. I felt like, I definitely felt like a bit of an outsider. I didn't feel like I came from any genre or scene at all. So does it take long to break into the world you've been so successful in, like as a composer who has had their works played by many ensembles, choirs, etc.? Did you find it hard to gain people's trust and recognition at first? I did. And I would say that a few of my peers who are also women would agree with me that I think I felt for a while I really had to prove that I could do it, that I had to prove myself in terms of working on different pieces and, and projects. And in many ways, I still feel that way, but it, it definitely felt stronger when I was younger. And I I don't know if this is the same for you know, the art world in general, do you know, if you're coming from theatre or dance or or whatever. But often if there is someone, whether it's, I don't know, an individual or an institution that kind of vouches for you, that tends to be helpful. I mean, you know, it's not lost in me that when I got a scholarship to Princeton University, it's a big Ivy League school. The timing of me starting there and then starting to get commissioned work you know, the timing is very, <laughs> very curious um, because you've got this this huge institution saying, yeah, we've accepted her as a student here. The prestige of, of a lot of these institutions. I wish it wasn't like that, but I think unfortunately it is. You have to be seen to be working on different types of projects, I suppose. But it wasn't really until then where I felt like things are kicking off you know I was getting approached to write pieces whereas before that I was kind of applying to different festivals and residencies and I was also part of a collective called the Irish Composers Collective and through that I got a lot of performances 
they weren't commissioned work. That was all unpaid, part of the collective. Um, you could put your name forward if you wanted to write for whatever ensemble. So that was all Arts Council funded every year. So through that, I got a few, I, I got a few performances, but I also got to meet and build relationships with other ensembles and performers, some who I still know really well and who went on to play my pieces, you know, not just premiere them, but like repeat performances. I have a lot to, you know, a lot of thanks to that group because I think for a lot of younger composers in Ireland, they they kind of get going through that collective, definitely. Can we just touch on a little bit, finishing your leaving cert and then you went to mm. Trinity. You did your degree and your master's there? I did my undergrad there and then I took a year out to just be uh, a piss head <laughs> <laughs> and just work. And then actually uh, one of my best friends had started uh, a master's called Music and Media Technologies. And I was living with her at the time. I was just working and dosing and she had started this course and she was coming home and talking about the assignments and I was just, you know, drawn in. I was like, okay, I think maybe next year I have to put in an application. And it was through just seeing what she was up to, the different subjects um, on that master's. So then I started that in 2007. And that at the time it was a two-year course. It's, it's a year now. Two years of just being totally creatively fearless because you've assignment after assignment. You just have to keep going and just go with whatever ideas go at your gut because there was the media element. I got to learn video editing and we did subjects like psychoacoustics and music cognition and um, stuff I still, as a lecturer, I will still reference a lot. So that was huge in terms of working on compositions as well because that was an element of the Masters too. How did the scholarship for Princeton come about? Finished the Masters and for a few years, myself and my friends... We were working, but it was also the, the start of the recession when I finished my master's. Like, that was it. We were lucky that a lot of us were working part-time. We're on the dole, the part-time dole, part-time working. Um, and there were so many of us doing that in Dublin at the time. But that got very, very exhausting. because you just felt like you were going nowhere. Like, it, it just felt like, you know, you weren't going backward or forward. You were just kind of existing. And it was hard. It was getting harder in Dublin, I think, with rent and things like that. And a friend of mine had been looking at schools in the States. And it was actually my composition teacher who I had in my undergrad and in my master's. And he was saying, if you want to do a PhD, please don't do it in Ireland. Look elsewhere. And he he was talking about a, a few schools in the States. So I basically applied to all the schools that were going to be essentially free, <laughs> where I wouldn't have to pay tuition and that had fellowships. All the Ivy Leagues kind of offer scholarships and fellowships. So, um, yeah, applied to Princeton at the end the end of 2011 and then found out, um, I think mid 2012 that I got a place. So yeah, kind of a few months to move continents then. What did the fellowship, what did it give, give to you? Did you learn a lot? Did it completely change the way you compose? Like, was it very worthwhile? Was it challenging? It was worthwhile. It was challenging. It was isolating. Princeton is quite a small town and it's, you know, your classic college town. And because it's an Ivy League school, you know, 
a lot of the professors also live there. So there are really good schools and amenities and things like that. But there's nothing fringe. There's nothing underground there. Nothing counter to any of that, which I found hard because I'd kind of been so used to living in Dublin for years and years and years. It was very, very quiet there. There was no structure to really to our time there. Usually we had afternoon seminars But then it was just sort of like, you have all this free time, you're four years now where you're getting a salary and you can compose, which is, I suppose, every artist's dream in a way. But I found that lack of structure very difficult at the beginning because some months you'd have nothing to show for what you were getting paid. And and then other months you'd be very busy. Um, So it took me a while to adjust. But The seminars, again, I mentioned the masters, everything I learned in those seminars, I bring into my teaching still. I got to teach there, which was great teaching experience. I wouldn't say there was a drastic change in what I was writing, only that I just got more experience at writing and and working with different ensembles. So there wasn't this huge kind of stylistic change. I I guess it was just more adventurous with material as well and you know my professors there were great and very encouraging a lot of the time they would say just go with the idea that you think that you're maybe slightly embarrassed about or you're you're worried what other they're like then that's probably the idea to kind of pursue so they were very good and they never kind of um you know they didn't push a particular style to compose you know they didn't say you have to compose in this style and I think definitely last century anyway and for a lot of their university education they were told to compose in a particular style so it's a lot more open now so it was kind of a nice a nice community there but at times kind of isolating definitely challenging in the seminars all right do you think it was vital for your career though maybe vital is not the word but it, it was great that I was able to just essentially you know composers do often work on their own but it's not it's never in a vacuum you know I was able to just meet more people over there so now I have relationships with performers and ensembles in Ireland and over there as well so I still get to to work with people over there and I get to travel and then you know there is a really good scene over there like it's it's close-knit but not in a clickish way so when you work with one ensemble, you get to meet more performers and just end up sharing your work a bit more as well. I'm talking about relationships with performers. I might play The Scolds. That's a solo flute piece that I wrote for Lena Andonovska. And we've been kind of working together on another project as well. So we've known each other the last few years and she's she's a phenomenal musician. She's brilliant. Thank <laughs> you. 
That was the scores by Amanda Fury, and that was written specifically for Alina Andonovska, the flautist. Can you tell us a little bit about the scores? What's the backstory? It all started with an internet rabbit hole, <laughs> as a lot of my pieces do. Um, there, there was some article about Hillary Clinton and her voice being shrill uh, when she's like, I think this was during the the presidential debates. And then that started a rabbit hole of other articles about the word shrill and the sort of policing of women's voices. And I came across this article about the policing of women's voices in medieval England and that they referred to women who, I suppose, just spoke their mind and they called them scolds. And then I read about this, I guess, mask or kind of muzzle called the scold's bridle that was fastened to the face of women that that literally held their tongue so they couldn't they couldn't make a sound so that was like their their sentence to to wear this to, to wear this bridle i was repulsed by this contraption but for some reason in that thought process i was thinking about the mouthpiece of the flute and how you can obscure musical material and then reveal it so that started off with trying out some techniques with Lena, the flautist. You know, the material, you'd hear a whisper of notes through the instrument, but it wasn't fully clear. So that was the idea is that eventually the piece opens up and it's initially not very clear and it's kind of obscured and then everything kind of opens up. So that was, I imagined the mouthpiece of the flute as this sort of bridle that eventually kind of gets, you know, it gets taken off. Was it difficult for her to play? I think so in parts because it's a very, as you heard, it, it is kind of like in speed, quite fast paced. There's not a lot of even moments of rest. And for a woodwind player that <laughs> they need to, they always need to take a bit of a break. So it's like high energy performance needed for sure. This might be a ridiculous question, but I'm trying to correlate two worlds. Um, <laughs> John Lennon once said, the best songs are the ones you write on a Monday, record on a Tuesday, release on a Wednesday, and they're in the charts on Friday. 
I would consider your compositions, you know, like Vultures performed by the Crash Ensemble or anything from your phenomenal Arata EP as perhaps cinematic, incredibly rich, beautiful music. And then in contrast to those pieces, you have the Marriage Equality Tweet piece, which we heard for a male quintet and Give Us the Night, which you composed for Chicago's Percussion Quartet, Third Coast Percussion. You know, six minutes of music for five voices with different registers or a 10 minute piece for only percussion. When you write a piece of music for the Crash Ensemble or a Third Coast Percussion, is it a bit like embarking on a thesis or can it present itself to you on a Monday and it's done and dusted by the weekend because it sounds like it would take a long time as the interplay between the voices and instruments sounds so nuanced. You know, it's not 4-4 four, four and three chords in the background. Mm. Is it a massive task or if you're in that world, can it present itself to you on a Monday and you kind of have it done and dusted in a few days? It's so funny. Um, like, I've ri- I have written pieces quickly, like mm. really quickly. And actually the scolds was written as in I sat down and notated it all very quickly. But I suppose I had been thinking about it. It was all kind of like percolating in my head, I suppose. And then I just sat down and it came out. And some pieces are a lot, like the very air tastes different. I spent a whole summer on that and just couldn't, I suppose couldn't get like the, the impact I wanted with the text, like the clarity of the text. So kind of setting it for the voice is, is always a bit tricky. So that took a few months. And then I've spent months and months on pieces that then wasn't happy with and they never got performed again. And then I've I've written pieces in a few days that get performed all the time. It's it's a it's a real I, I don't know what works. I have written stuff really quickly and it has, like you said there, it sort of presents itself. And it just, like that whole thing is kind of cliche to talk about flow, but like something happens. I guess that's what it is. That's what flow is. But you're sitting there for a few hours and you end up getting so much done and you're nearly there. And then you finish another section and you might walk away from it, but in your head you're like, ah, I know how that ends now. Grant, got it. And then other times it's absolute torture and you're just, you've such a block and it's, it's totally impossible and you're stuck for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then something, there's a, some kind of spark. So when I was younger, I'd always kind of be really anxious about getting stuff done. But even now, if I have very little time, I kind of trust that that spark will, even if it arrives the day before <laughs> the piece is due, the spark, it always arrives at some point and, and things just... It's like amnesia or something. It just kind of, when everything is done, you're sort of like, how did that come together? But it does. It's kind of, I can't explain it. It's a weird kind of cosmic thing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's interesting because it's it's what Lennon was saying is kind of, I just wondered that translate into that world, the classical world and pieces like that. Oh yeah. I'm like, I know, I know other composers that, that write really quickly. They might be thinking about it for a long time and not doing anything. But when it comes to sitting down, then they, they can write quickly. And actually, I've had I've had arguments with composers and other professors about songwriting, because to me, I think writing a song is the hardest thing you can do. Like, I, I, I don't think I'd be ever, ever be able to write a song. Whatever about the lyrics, but actually, because I suppose to our Western ears anyway, we're so used to that structure of like the verse and the chorus and... Lots of artists might deviate from the kind of studs or the foundations of that structure. But I just think anyone who can write a song is incredible 
and I think it can be a lot more complicated than, than writing uh, an orchestral work. I mean, an orchestral work is you're writing for a lot of people, but sometimes songs can be so exposed. That's why I think, you know, writing a solo piece compared to a piece with like 10 musicians is way harder because you'd get all of the message of the piece into one voice, one instrument, and it's a lot harder. That's fascinating to yeah. me. Yeah. Composition really is a gift. I think we've all, like most musicians, will have played or know someone that has a knack for, you know, writing a tune or a catchy chorus. And they make it seem effortless. Does composing for percussion and strings or five voices, as an example, come naturally to some people? Or does there need to be years of training, do you think? Like, I know some composers who are singers and sang in choirs. And their choral music, I think, as a singer, you know, they've been in the pit, so to speak. So they know, they kind of know what will be effective um, in performance. And the same for, for like, maybe... Musicians that have played in an orchestra, they, they might find writing for those kind of textures easier than another composer. I think any conversations I've had with composers, some will be really comfortable writing for, yeah, a certain collection of instruments. And then there might be other ensembles or other instruments that are just kind of trickier. So there's definitely that. Like I feel quite at home writing for strings uh, and voices particularly. But then I, I'd find more of a kind of chamber co combination of like woodwinds and brass, a, a lot more challenging. Um, so it, it kind of it kind of depends. Composers definitely have like some comfort zones and then others like right out of their comfort zone. The classical music scene might have a reputation for being very academic, virtuosic and maybe inaccessible even if you are musically illiterate. Would you agree that in order to be successful in composing for operas, choirs, ensembles, that you have to be able to read and write music? Is that a given? In terms of reading music and, and things like that, I think if you want something like an opera, you know, the score is is a huge part of that in that the singers are given a score, the conductor is given a score, the director, like everyone is kind of working from this document. So if you wanted to do a large scale work without writing in the language that all of these people have trained years in, it's doable, but it takes more time. And I think a lot of ensembles now are trying to be more accessible with collaborative work and not assume everyone's coming from necessarily from that background of having years and years and years of training. Um, but what's really essential if musicians and ensembles want to collaborate with artists like that, they have to be given the time. It's extra time. Like any musician can sit down and sight read if they've trained for years. So a piece can get come together quite quickly if it's all notated in a sort of standard score that the that musicians are used to. But if there's anything maybe slightly outside the peripheries of that, they might need more time with it. So I think I would like to see more accessibility, but you also need to pair that with like, you need extra time. You just need more time to work on it if there's another mode of communicating the ideas. Myself and a friend, a composer friend of mine, Emma Halloran, set up a programme called Creative Lab. It was really inspired by this composition course in the US run by composer Missy Mazzoli called Luna Lab. And that took in teenagers 
where they were mentored for several months and the course kind of culminated in performances of their pieces. Um, and we wanted something like that in Ireland, but to have it way more open in that we aimed it at like 12 to 18 year olds from backgrounds that weren't represented in music at all, particularly classical music. We had a concert, we had a few months of mentoring, but what we had kind of prefaced the application with was saying you can apply and you don't need to be able to read music for this course. So myself and Emma and a few other amazing composers mentored with us. We all took two composers each and it was kind of like half during COVID lockdown. And we were just, we did it all on Zoom with the composers. But everyone learned new skills because um, we're coming at it from a world that we're used to reading music and... Then you're trying to help help these composers communicate in a different way, and we needed we needed several months. It wasn't this wasn't going to happen in like a two weeks or the Easter camp course or whatever. We were meeting them for several months, and then they had workshops to hear how things sounded, and like instruments they'd never even seen before. Then the concert was so nice. Like I, I had a little cry that day. It was it was just so. You know, we had composers that had moved to Ireland as asylum seekers and we had like lots of different backgrounds represented there and, and, you know, that really aren't represented in classical music. We were aiming the course, you know, we weren't aiming it at kids who had studied piano since they were three years of age. Definitely wasn't aimed at those teenagers. It was kind of aimed at teenagers who have a passion for it but maybe didn't go down the lessons route at all, or maybe financially couldn't. What we learned from that was it's totally doable, but you you just need to give them time because it's an, it's another way of communicating their ideas. So I want to ask you about composing for, for percussion. Mm-hmm. Do you play percussion? Nope. So was it hard? Yeah, I suppose there's... You kind of have to set limits because I, I was writing for a quartet and... The amazing thing about percussionists is that they come up with their own choreography for whatever collection of instruments you write. So you might they might have this huge um, vibraphone in front of them, but you also are asking them to play triangle and other smaller instruments. So they have this, it's like every piece will be totally different in setup. So it's like where they're playing an instrument in front of them, they need to be able to grab a tambourine or like other things. So they have their own setup for every different piece. So there's actually a lot of logistics to think about when writing for percussion because you have to give them time to move if they need to pick up something else. Like if they're, say, playing with mallets or like sticks or hot rods or whatever they're playing with. So you have to kind of write into the music, like maybe a bar or two, rest So you're doing that for four people. So there's like a kind of a project management going on. And then it's like you have to write that into the material itself in a way that, you know, doesn't, it's not kind of obvious. So just for a frame of reference, we're just going to listen to Give Us Tonight that you composed for Third Coast Percussion.
Yeah, there's a lot going on there, Amanda. How did you compose for all of that? With this piece, Give Us the Night, I got to work with Third Coast Percussion over a few months in Chicago. So I flew to Chicago a few times to do workshops with them. So like the very first workshop, you walk into their huge studio and it's like ceiling to floor. Every corner of the room, every side of the room is like shelves of stuff they've used in different performances and different concerts. They've made their own kind of percussion stuff, like from metal plates and planks of wood and bottles. And they kind of collect interesting, like sonically interesting stuff that they can hit. (laughs) Um, So they have everything in this studio and they were like, yeah, so what do you want to write for? And it was like really hard to come up with um, the collection for the piece. So I was thinking... I definitely want sort of percussion that has a pitch and then say something like the floor tom that doesn't have a pitch and like have a combination of pitched to noise, pitched, unpitched, and then unusual colours like glass and that aren't necessarily orchestral percussion instruments. But if you can hit it, a percussionist will play it. They're incredibly open about kind of hybrid instruments, I suppose. Did you write the piece in that room so with all the instruments or did you write it all in your head? I, after a few of those workshops, I kind of decided on what the instrumentation would be for the four players. So they all had their own little station and setup of different things. Um, and then once I decided, I, I wrote it at home in Ireland and then went back to Chicago for a few days and, and practiced it and workshopped and maybe there was a few changes but not huge and then they played it they uh, played it in a concert. So when you were writing at home in Ireland, were you just imagining the sounds in your head because you knew what they sounded like now? I, or did you take samples? I'm just fascinated on how it I came did, together. I did. I recorded the stuff like the glass and I had, um, I was working with like putting towels over like some of the floor toms to get like a distant sound. So I'd, I'd made like field recordings of all of that, but I use a notation program called Sibelius, which has a sample library. So I was at least able to hear things like um, the vibraphone and any of the orchestral percussion is has a sample library in those programs. So I had a sort of, you know, we call it like a mock-up. So I was able to listen back to those sections, but... Within that, then I had to like also think about, well, they're going to be moving to the right to grab this. So they're not going to have their right hand. So they need to do this with their left hand. And it's like you're, you're when definitely when you're writing with percussion, you, you kind of become a composer, or choreographer as well. Yeah, it's mad. And it's a yeah. time in a piece, right? Yeah. So mm. is there any improvisation in that? No, there was a lot of repetition of rhythms repeating patterns in maybe the kit or something like that. And um, there was a lot of repeating patterns in definitely the vibraphone. And then the fact that a lot of the instruments, they play with two mallets, you know, you can play kind of fast paced stuff. They bow a lot of the instruments so you can get kind of lots of strange sounds from using different implements to actually get sound from these instruments too. So this next piece is uh, an improvisation um, on an album I put out in 2014 on Forty Evil Fruit called Spells from the Ice Age and this piece is called Nocturne for the Old Raver.
That was Nocturne for an old raver and that's picked by my guest today, Amanda Fury. Amanda, can you tell us a little bit about that tune? Yeah, this is from an album that I released a few years ago called Spells from the Ice Age and the entire album is a collection of piano improvisations on my piano at home. So I was living in the States at the time and every summer I'd come back home and and sit down at the piano and I kind of missed that piano a lot. So I started recording improvisations on it and then I had like this whole like large collection and then I chose a few for this album. So you have written an opera. So just to get really technical, can you explain just exactly what an opera is? The shortest definition, I suppose, is that the music is fundamental. The music drives the the story. It drives the drama. People might think, but, you know, what's the difference between like a musical, say, and an opera? I suppose there's probably more like dialogue spoken word in in musical theatre. And then traditionally opera has this kind of structure that moves between... Um, pieces of music where the character is really reflective and like the plot doesn't jump forward you know you don't get more about the plot but then there are parts of opera where the plot is driven on so it's like that kind of back and forth back and forth um, of an opera plot but yeah I think obviously it's a hugely collaborative art form like it involves costume and set design and and dance but ultimately it's it's music and, and the libretto that drives the whole thing. So how different was composing for an opera to anything you've done before? I mean, I wasn't a loner. I got to <laughs> I got to work with Megan Nolan, um, who wrote the libretto for my opera, A Thing I Cannot Name. I had been a, a huge fan of Megan's for years and years. And I'm so happy because um, her second novel, um, was it last year that was out? And both her first and, and second novel have, have done so well. She's getting all this acclaim and it's so well deserved. Um, but I like basically cold called cold emailed Megan during COVID and was like, I love your work. Do you, do you want to write an opera? <laughs> um, um, and she was, she was really up for it. So, um, like I got, it was just nice to not be working on my own. You know, I got to work with Megan and then the director and the singers and like, there's the whole, there's the whole amazing creative team. It's definitely not just the composer, even though you might hear, you know, the opera, you know, is prefaced by the name of the composer's opera. It is, I very much saw it as this collaborative collective effort. It's our opera. You know, it was just amazing not to, uh, to kind of bounce ideas off how they saw stuff and, you know, whatever about setting text, any idea they might have, like, set up ideas for a sound world that I'd create like some kind of idea they had like a visual that would send me off you know thinking of different ideas so I I really thrived because I didn't find I had much of a block writing because I had I had my own ideas and everyone else's ideas kind of like just all filtering in so it was great. What was the opera about? It's based on three women at different periods of time who are living in a city centre flat in Dublin, um, you know, across three different years. And they're all expressing their desires and they all, all three have very different desires, not just, not just romantic desires um, of what they, what they're yearning for. And because this opera was written during COVID, it had planned to be staged 
But we realised with the lockdown restrictions, if we stage it, like 15 people are going to be able to come in. So we decided to make it a film. And it, it was filmed in the complex in Dublin over a few days. But actually that really benefited the narrative because we were able to do this kind of triptych of the three women on screen because they were, you know, over periods of time. And it meant I could write in a particular way with, with a lot of vocal layering that isn't traditionally um, maybe something in traditional opera at all. So it we got to experiment actually a lot more by turning it into a film. When people think of an opera, they might think of an orchestra yeah. and, you know, an opera singer, mm-hmm. male or female. Um, what instrumentation did you use? I, I had a small ensemble and I had some electronic um, synth elements as well. So it was like a small chamber ensemble, piano, electric guitar, double bass, flute and violin as well. So I had to create so many different sound worlds from that ensemble, which was a challenge, but it was interesting, you know, to that was my orchestra like to work with. Uh, the three women, were they singing as well? Yeah, actually, before filming, we recorded the whole opera in Windmill Lane and then um, they lip synced during the filming. <laughs> so yeah, it, Irish National Opera at that point had actually filmed a lot of operas that, you know, were going to be maybe staged but just couldn't because of COVID. So at that point, they kind of had it down in terms of what, you know, the logistics of what needs to be done um, to make an opera on film. Is it available for anyone to see? It will hopefully be soon. It, um, it's it been screened at a couple of, of festivals. It premiered at the, the West Cork Literary Festival. And then, yeah, so the premiere ha- was online and it's been at a few different festivals. Yeah, so hopefully the we'll be able to release the full film soon. And it's called? A Thing I Cannot Name. So I might play um, a piece by a composer called Cassandra Miller. And it's an excerpt from a longer work. Um, The piece is called Duet for Cello and Orchestra.
That was Duet for Cello and Orchestra by Cassandra Miller, and that's picked by my guest today, Amanda Fieri. Amanda, you won the Markovich Award for Music in 2023, which is funding a project coming out this year. The project is an hour-long radio work responding to Eamon de Valera's 1943 radio address on language and the Irish nation. Can you tell us what kind of response it is? Is it a critique of the devil era, perhaps? Um, I I love that. Would you call that a pun? I don't know. I love that play on words anyway. But um, yeah, so I'd suppose listeners might be more familiar with the the name of that speech is often referred to as the Ireland that we dreamed of. That's That's another name for it. Or the comely maiden's speech, as it's sometimes referred to as well. Yeah, it's a response. It's 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 not an over overtly political work it's definitely like a a pointed you know subtle critique of of that era for sure but also i heard that speech a, a, a tiny clip of it in a music documentary years ago and the one line i heard was about happy maidens and cozy homesteads or something it really provoked me and the speech has provoked me for for years and years and i always wanted to do something, some kind of piece around it, not setting the text, obviously, or anything, but some kind of response, especially like uh, a female response. So we got this funding to to do the piece. And really, we're, we're looking at, you know, that 1943 radio address is the energy of that and the spirit of it is is very at odds with like the revolutionary spirit of women who fought for independence, like Countess Markovich. And just, it goes against a lot of their desires, or even socio-political desires. And then it just made the speech, a lot of like different clips from the speech, make me think of like that gulf of time between the address and like present day, and kind of a reflection of how the state has treated women. And people, like families, you know, people of Ireland in general. I heard certain clips from the speech and I'm immediately thinking of an event or a politician or a scandal, you know, since the free state. You know, there's one line from the speech, uh, I think it's frugal comfort. And then I immediately think of a politician like Charlie Hawhey, who in the 80s addressed the nation saying they were living by on their means when he was up spending it up with islands and whatever he had so it's made me Ah, kind of but he was great for the arts though yeah Estana (laughs) (laughs) yeah Estana was just for his mates to get paid but yeah it's definitely there's basically a lot of prompts in the speech to explore life in Ireland in a way you know um we have some of the piece recorded and written. So Emer Walsh, the librettist who's working with me, they've written a bit of the libretto based around an eviction and just your home. This this feeling of having to leave it. It's very powerful. It's very visceral text and it's kind of poignant and brings up a lot of feelings for me. But that's just kind of one prompt from the de Valera speech. There are a lot of others. There's autonomy, religion. There's so many themes that you can take from his ideal Ireland. And then you look at the succeeding decades and you see, well, well, what really did was he dreaming of? You know, like what has happened since during his reign and then after? 
because it's for radio, I have this dream of broadcasting it on Paddy's Day. I think it would be amazing to broadcast it at the exact same time that it was broadcast in 1943 on St. Patrick's Day, but we'll see. Instead of a tune, you've picked a monologue by Alan Rickman. Um, yeah. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, so this is from a short f- film called Revolutionary Witness. And there were four film shorts broadcast on TV, I think it was in 1989, for the bicentennial of the French Revolution. So Alan Rickman plays um, a real-life character who did exist, uh, Jacques Roux. I heard this speech only a few months ago. You know, he has diaries that were published either last year or the year before. His wife finished the end of that book of diaries by saying what happened at his funeral, his memorial service, because he planned his own funeral. He, he, he died of cancer. He said the only thing he wanted played was this monologue as an example of his work. It's the, apparently the only thing he was really proud of. And I've always been a huge fan of Alan Rickman, his acting, but also his political values, I guess, as an artist. He was behind the, I don't know, you know, the play My Name is Rachel Curry. He produced that and directed it and edited the diaries of Rachel Curry. She was an activist who was in Gaza and got bulldozed by the IDF while she was trying to protect the home of a, of a Palestinian family. So the player is kind of adapted from her diaries and her emails to her family when, when she was over there. So I'm a huge admirer of him for that, but I, I came across this because it was mentioned in the book that it was at his funeral and I'd never heard it. And it's 20 minutes of, you know, just in terms of actor technique, it's an unbelievable listen. But I think the subject matter of the excerpt that I've chose is very relevant to, you know, what's going on in the world at the moment. God created rich people first and then showed them the world they would own. And when they came to a field with thousands of headless bodies with torsos and hands like iron, God told them the headless bodies were destined to be poor workers. The rich cried out, but these heroes with their iron muscles will crush us. Don't be frightened, answered God. I shall place very small heads and brains on their bodies, so until they develop them, you've nothing to fear. Who are still the oppressors? The rich, who are still the oppressed, the poor. Your slavery is their liberty. Your poverty is their prosperity. Priests say the poor must be content with their poverty and they'll find heaven hereafter. Idiots, cretinous rag pickers. My dog Georges has more sense. Don't you know that whilst you're gazing up at heaven, your pockets are being picked clean, your eyes are plucked out and you're robbed of your birthright, blind to what is done to you. Christ's priests seized mankind in its cradle and broke the bad news saying you shapeless stench you can never be anything but filthy your only chance of winning a pardon for being so filthy is if you bow low in perfect humility in the face of all the afflictions sorrows and injustices heaped upon you you're poor and you stay poor that is how it is meant to be life is a bitter ordeal don't speak out just try and save your worthless soul you won't be able to but you'll give us less trouble by trying and when the time comes for you to die croaking the darkness will be as hard to bear as the daylight ever was. 
The church knows its business. It offers fear and punishment, not happiness, certainly not liberty, only servitude, forever and forever. Religion is a liar and a cheat. Yet still you hunger for it. That's why you've sent for me. Jacques Roux, Mad Jacques, Red Roux, preacher of the poor, sower of sedition, subverter of all laws, a priest who saw the light of reason and now proclaims fellowship with all who live in dark dens and desolate places. It's fitting that I should preach perhaps my last sermon in a ruined church in the parish of St. Nicholas, Summer's End. I go before the tribunal tomorrow charged with revolutionary excess. Now I am, it seems, too revolutionary for the revolution. And so it begins. When power rested in one man, King Louis, all sorts complained of oppression and the nobility, middle and moneyed men called on the poor to help. Together we lopped off that top branch of tyranny, but the tree still stands and spreads New branches hide the son of freedom from the poor. The Revolutionary Tribunal is one such. I don't recognize its authority to judge me. Only the poor of St. Nicholas can do that. I come here to lay the rags and tatters of my life before my peers. Habits are hard to break, citizens. I come to confess me. Hear my confession. Do not forgive me, Father, for I have not sinned. That was monologue from Revolutionary Witness by Alan Rickman, and that was picked from my guest today, Amanda Fury. Uh, I want to go back to your time in the States, actually. You completed your PhD in music composition in 2019 in Princeton University, which we spoke about, but we didn't speak about this. You focused your research on Kate Bush's song suite, The Ninth Wave. Can you tell us exactly what the output of your PhD was? My thesis was on Kate Bush's voice. So it was kind of in two halves, basically. So the first half was looking at the development of Kate Bush's voice from like her really early like bootleg demos up to the album Hounds of Love. So the development of her, of her voice and her compositional voice. And then the other half, I was kind of thinking of my dissertation like an album, side A, side B. <laughs> side B was actually a really deep dive into side B of Hounds of Love album, which is a song suite called The Ninth Wave. And The Ninth Wave, um, it's like a concept suite. And, you know, apart from like, say, prog bands, I'd never really come across a pop artist at this time kind of doing concept album sort of stuff. I was keen to write about Kate Bush because there wasn't a lot of scholarship on analysing her music, like what the hell is going on with her music? Because there's, there's something. There's a lot of scholarship on like her lyrics and uh, her music videos and in relation to like, you know, women and gender in music, but not the actual music. There's, there's very little. So I just really wanted to do like this thorough kind of analysis, particularly of the ninth wave. So I spent a summer two years before I submitted the PhD, transcribing the whole, every single song, um, which took forever, it took months. Um, and then I felt I had to do that first to be able to analyse the music properly, be able to follow every line, because you can listen and listen and listen to the recordings, but 
I don't know. I just had to see it kind of on on paper on the page. So yeah, I I sort of did an analysis of there is a narrative to the suite that Kate Bush refers to, and it's this idea of a woman at sea at night that she's either been abandoned or uh, like she's in a life jacket but there's this idea that if she falls asleep she's going to just sink under the water and drown there's parts of the suite where she's trying to stay awake and then there's parts of the suite where she realizes she sees herself under the water and she is asleep then there's dream sequences <laughs> like there's a lot there's a lot going on in it but there's a fusion of a load of different styles like Bill Whelan who composed River Dance composed parts of the song called Jig of Life Donald Lunny's in there playing uh, Lima Flynn on the Ellen Pipes Greek ceremonial folk music in there it's kind of like she threw everything at a wall and then <laughs> of all her influences and came, and came up with this story and this suite of songs. So it was hard to do all the writing, obviously, because I had to write and write and write, but it was genuinely a joy just to spend time with that material. There might be some up-and-coming composers listening to this and wondering how they can make it in the world of composition. Would you have any advice to people starting out now? I would say, number one, don't worry about music theory. I... I I hear of so many musicians in different genres and when I think of the word composer, by the way, I don't think of, it has classical music connotations, I think, because people think of Beethoven or whatever. But I think of a composer of who maybe writes music that is scored, but maybe also writes music at the computer, at the guitar. It's an umbrella term. Everyone's a composer there. But I, I do I do find sometimes students and composers starting out and musicians worry about what they're doing is wrong because maybe it's not following conventions of music theory. I often have to tell younger composers to really follow their ear. You know, even if it does go against maybe what they were, if they maybe are coming from studying music, it might go against a lot what they study, but I think following following the ear for musical ideas and don't be afraid to be intuitive is really important as well for people who are have stuff that they've maybe written and have finished make friends with performers make approach people who can perform your work even if you don't if you get some kind of archival recording even if it's not a great quality recording just any kind of recording by doing that then you have scores and recordings that you can like approach more musicians and and more ensembles yeah just be open to collaborating as well because I think you can pick up different kind of inspirations for pieces that way and and different skills even as well. But I would say don't be sort of alone in it in order for music to be alive. You know, it has to be performed. So I think kind of building relationships that way is really important too. So for anyone listening who is a musician, for whatever reason, maybe can't go to college when they leave school. Would you have any advice for them? There's this kind of very, in Ireland anyway, there's this like predictable route that you have to do. You're leaving certain, then you should be filling out your CAO and be ready to the following September or whatever, be ready for college. Um, And it just doesn't work that way for a lot of people. Um, And actually, I think for an artist, whether it's like going to work, hanging out with friends, 
watching films, going to gigs, maybe traveling and seeing a bit of the world. A lot of that, it might not, those kind of experiences, no matter how mundane or exciting they are, they stay with you as an artist. And that's all there kind of waiting inside, I think. And um, just in relation to Alan Rickman, because we were talking about him earlier, he was, I think, in his 30s when he, he went to study acting. He used to say to younger actors, like, you'll have nothing to really perform or have as part of your practice if you're not, you're not going out and seeing the world, if you're not reading the paper, watching the news, talking to people. You'll just have a sort of... There'll be an emptiness to, to your practice and an emptiness to your work. And I totally agree with that. I don't see that as anyone falling behind at all or, or a negative thing in any way. I, I teach mature students in, in university and they bring so much stuff that they can teach me as well, actually, that, you know, things I haven't heard about or just because they're older than a few students, they're not coming in fully accomplished, but they are coming in with experiences. And, and that is, I think, can be a huge benefit. And I would say for anyone, you know, that um, can't get to college or can't study music, you know, going to concerts and gigs. And if you were to say, go to an orchestra concert or an ensemble concert, if there's any way of just getting chatting to musicians guarantee they're in the pub across the road after <laughs> so go and go and talk to them and you know if you're if you're interested and if you're passionate talk about what you want to work on and ask them for advice but it's like the same as someone who studied music in college it's like they will still have to build the, the relationships as well and and meet people and talk about their ideas. They're going to have to do the exact same thing. So, Amanda, thanks a million for coming on the show. I really, really enjoyed researching this one because your music is really stunning. Do you want to give us your last tune to play us out? Yeah, I, I have to finish with Kate Bush. And I was deciding what song and then I just said, feck it, Wuthering Heights. It's just, it's just one of our greatest. So.
tune in to Keeping Track every Monday at 1pm on UCC 98.3 FM. Keeping Track is hosted by me, Dave Hackett. I interview people in our community from all different backgrounds and my guests also choose the music that they love. When I'm not hosting an interview, I'll be playing a random selection of alternative music, old and new. Stay up to date with the show on Instagram where I announce upcoming guests and radio documentaries. You can listen back to previous shows on SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Keeping track every Monday at 1 here on UCC 98.3 FM.